Hello, and welcome to the first in our sequence of podcasts for the theme study. Now, the theme that we've chosen is power to the people. The shift in power from an absolute monarchy in the 1100s and the 1200s through to a representative democracy, which is what we live in now. I'm recording this on the eve of the general election in 2017. So this is quite a good moment to do it because it's literally a couple of days before I go, an ordinary working person who in the medieval period would have been a serf, a peasant, at most would have been a burgess. But I'm going to get to go and I'm going to get to choose who represents me in Parliament. I am going to get to choose who runs the country and how they run the country. I get to hold them accountable. And that is something that our ancestors simply could not have dreamed of. So where does it start? Well, it starts way, way back in the medieval period, and it starts in 1215. So the first topic that we're going to have a look at for this theme study is the Magna Carta, the Great Charter. We're going to do a couple of episodes on this, but the first one is going to be about how we get to the Great Charter. Why was the Great Charter necessary? And to do that, we need to understand the people involved. And we need to understand what it meant to be a king. You see, we're picking up here straight after the Norman kings. We're talking about the Plantagenet kings here. They rule an empire which stretches from the borders of Scotland down to the south of France, the Angevin Empire. They bestride the world of medieval Europe like colossi. They are famous, they are noble, and none is more famous and more noble than Richard, Heart of the Lion, Richard Coeur de Lion, Richard the Lionheart. He is one of the most famous kings in English history. When I grew up, he was held up as the paragon of all that was good and noble and strong. He went out on crusade. He fought against the infidels. He rescued Jerusalem. He was the very paragon of everything a king should be. Strong, wise, noble. Now, as we know, as we go through history and we look at it in more detail, your heroes are never exactly what you think, and Richard certainly had his faults. But that's not important, really. What's important is how people saw him at the time. And at the time, in the early 1200s, he was seen as the very perfect king. Chivalrous, noble, pure-hearted, religious and strong. Oh, he was strong, he was brave, he was a great warrior. He captured lands, he made a fantastic empire to pass on to his heirs. Except, he didn't have any heirs. He died childless. And so, his throne passes on to his brother. And his brother is King John. Bad King John. So unpopular is King John that his name has never been used by another English monarch. There is only one King John. Not King John I, and there's certainly no King John II. Just 
King John. He's so bad that most people know him only as the villain of the Robin Hood stories. That is King John, and that's pretty bad reputation. That's bad press, and that's who he is. Why was he seen as being so bad? That's the core of what we've got to have a look at. Because you have to understand why King John was so disliked at the time to understand why the Magna Carta was necessary, or why it was thought to be necessary, and also what is in it. You see, there is a risk, especially from the point of view of a history teacher, that we build up the Magna Carta to be more than it is. And in the second episode, we're going to talk about what the actual impact of the Magna Carta was. But suffice to say, in the anniversary of it, back in 2015, it was treated as the cornerstone of modern democracy, the heart of what makes our country what it is today, the thing that sparked off the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the, the Indian Constitution. But the document itself is tailored to King John and what King John is doing wrong. So what was he doing wrong? Well, it comes under three basic headings and these three basic headings are going to keep coming back again and again and again and again throughout the next thousand years of British history. They are money, religion and war. If we take it one at a time. All right, let's start with money. King John is constantly broke. One of the reasons he's constantly broke is that his brother, when he was king, Richard, had more or less bankrupted the kingdom in fighting his foreign wars and in having, having the country pay for the ransom when King Richard was captured. So the country's finances are in a terrible state. And that doesn't leave John much in the way of money to fund his incredibly lavish lifestyle and it doesn't leave him much in the way of funds to raise his armies to fight the wars he has to fight in order to prove himself as a strong king so he has to find other ways to raise money one of his main ways that he does it is to simply extort money from his barons i'll give you a couple of examples in 1208 William de Briuse was forced to pay 40,000 marks, that's somewhere in the region of 27,000 pounds, in order to have his lands restored to him. His wife and son were both still arrested and taken into custody, and they both died in custody. Think about this. This is the threat. I am the king. I will take your land off you. If you want it back, you must pay me a sum. And in order to make sure you do it, I am going to hold your wife and son hostage and there's no guarantees you're going to get them back and remember that sum twenty-seven thousand pounds is the money then all right another example 1211 robert devoe was fined two thousand marks for the king's benevolence what does that mean well basically pay me this money so that i will be nice to you in 1213, John de Lacey was forced to pay 7,000 marks in order to inherit his father's land. Inheritance, on the principle of primogeniture, was set in law in the time of William the Conqueror. This has been something that the barons thought they could rely upon, but not under the reign of King John. Now you have to pay extra if you want to inherit your land. There are lots and lots of other examples of him purely extorting money 
from his barons. On top of that, he uses scutage quite a lot. Now, if you remember, scutage is this idea of levying a tax, levying a payment upon people instead of service. So saying to them, instead of providing me your 60 days military service this year, you will pay me this amount of money. And King John does this a lot. He imposes scutage 11 times from 1199, and every time the money goes up. And what is he using this money for? Well, in some cases, he's using it to help defend his lands in France, uh, this Angevin Empire that we talked about. But in other cases, he's using it to fortify castles up and down the country, places that he might need if he's going to have to take cover from his barons that he is upsetting. A good example of that would be he spends around £2,291, three shillings and fourpence on fixing up Scarborough Castle and building a great hall there in order to make sure that it is absolutely secure to protect him in the north. Things come to a head in terms of money by 1214 because the king imposes scootage and the barons refuse to pay because they've simply had enough of being treated like cash cows. So that's money. Park that to one side. Because running parallel to this is the idea of religion. Now we're going to talk a lot about religion as we move through this topic. We're going to talk about it even more when we get to the early modern period and we start talking about Henry and Charles and James. However, at this point remember that the country is Catholic. That means everybody who is a member of the church in England is subject to the Pope. The Pope is the head of the church. So there is a split loyalty in the country. Spiritually, the leader is the Pope, and temporally, in terms of the real world, the leader is the King. And what you need to try and avoid doing is coming into conflict with the Pope, which is, unfortunately, exactly what John does. In what is basically a rerun of the investiture controversy that we talked about at the end of the Norman period, John disagrees with the Pope over who should be able to appoint the Archbishop of Canterbury. John wants to put his man in there, while the Pope wants to put his man in there. John stands firm. This is my kingdom, my church, it will go by my rules. The Pope also stands firm. It is my church, and I am God's vicar, I am God's spokesman, and you will do as you are told. Eventually, the Pope reacts by excommunicating John, that is banishing him from the church entirely and then banning all church services from 1208 to 1213 in England. This is called an interdiction. It may not sound like much, but you have to think about the centrality of the church to medieval life. Because of the interdiction, you cannot get married, you cannot baptize your children you cannot be buried in sanctified ground. All of these things mean that your soul is in imminent danger of going to hell. You are definitely going to purgatory. There is no way while the country is under interdiction that you are going to heaven. 
This causes a huge amount of displeasure with John because this is regarded as being John's fault. And it is emphasised when in 1212 the Pope states that it is not a sin to kill King John. At that point, John has to appreciate the fact that he is outmaneuvered, outfought and outthought and he has to give up. He surrenders, bends the knee to the Pope, the Pope removes the interdiction, welcomes John back into the church, but perhaps more importantly, John has lost a huge amount of face. He's lost a huge amount of stature. He's lost a huge amount of respect of his barons and also of the ordinary people. So that's religion. We'll park that to one side. The third and final area in which John is somewhat lacking is war. Remember, to be a king in the medieval period you must be a mighty warrior, like Richard the Lionheart. John is not. John loses the lands in France. And in 1214, the straw that breaks the camel's back, he loses Normandy, ancestral home of the royal family of England. Remember, these are the people who are descended from William the Conqueror. The Dukedom of Normandy is their home. It is where they are from. And John loses it. His nicknames are Soft Sword and Lackland. And there's two interesting things about that. First off, Lackland. He lacks the land to be effectively a king. Secondly, Soft Sword. He can't fight. Now, the first interesting thing about the soft sword one is not only does it suggest that he cannot fight, but it is also certainly a suggestion that he is lacking in manliness. It has the impression of impotence. It implies that he is not a real man. This is a deadly insult to any man, but especially to a king. So, soft sword and lackland, these nicknames, the second most important thing about them is that we know about them. They have come down to us, which means that they were in common usage, but also that people were not frightened of using them and were not frightened of recording them. That tells us a lot, I think, about the general disregard in which he was held. He tries to impose scootage again in 1215 in order to try and launch another campaign to try and recapture these lands in France. Now remember, the barons don't necessarily mind paying the taxes if they are funding successful military campaigns, because a successful military campaign grants more land, which can be given to more barons, which produces more profit and more taxes, and everybody is better off. Therefore, in those cases, taxes and scootage are basically an investment. But John is taking the money in, and he is not gaining anything from it. John is not gaining any land, he's not gaining any success. So in 1215, when John makes this new attempt to impose scootage after the refusal of 1214, the barons again refuse. And this time, they organise. They start to arm themselves. They get themselves a leader from their number, a baron called Robert Fitzwalter, and they start to prepare for war. In May 1215, London comes out in support of the barons. 
John realises that he's out of time and he does something that we're going to see again and again and again when royal authority is challenged. He plays for time. John agrees to meet with the rebels by the banks of the Thames at a place called Runnymede on the 15th of June 1215. The barons present their demands in a written form. King John reads them and he signs them. Here is the most important thing to remember. This great document that everybody says is the cornerstone of English democracy. John had absolutely no intention of sticking to it. He had no intention of honouring this charter whatsoever. He simply signs it as a stalling action while he starts to rebuild his forces. So there you have it. Why the Magna Carta was necessary is a number of reasons to do with notions of medieval kingship, to do with how John did not match up to that, and to do with war, religion, and money. In the next episode, we'll pick up what was actually in the Magna Carta, what happened after the signing, and then what the long-term impact of the Magna Carta was. Did it really make a difference as we move through history? Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.